My headache won't go away. I get blurry vision. My balance is awful. I'm exhausted. We can all get these symptoms from time to time. But if you or a loved one notice you're getting a combination of them regularly, don't ignore it. They could be signs of a brain tumour. My headache won't go away. I get blurry vision. My balance is awful. I'm exhausted. To learn more about the common signs of a brain tumour, search Better Safe Than Tumour. Welcome to Let's Talk About Brain Tumours, the podcast where we'll be talking to people who've been affected by a brain tumour diagnosis, either their own diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one. We'll also be sharing news and updates from the Brain Tumour Charity about what we're doing to halve the harm and double survival. Welcome to the podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host Sarah Chalice, um, who you met in a previous episode. And today we've got Diane Thomas with us and she's going to be sharing with us some of her story about her and her husband, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi, Diane. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be on the podcast? Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I got in touch with the Brain Tumor Charity recently after my husband Nick passed away in September from a brain tumor. And I got chatting with Sarah, Sarah Chalice, and we decided that it'd be good to do a podcast together. My story started way back in January 2012. It was a normal day, a normal Monday. I'd got home from work and Nick had got home shortly before me. We, as usual, chatted about our day, went to get changed from our work clothes. I remember being in the bathroom and I heard a large, loud groaning noise. It sounded like a wild animal. Basically, it was Nick having a grand mal seizure. I'd never seen anyone have a grand mal seizure before, so I really didn't know what was happening. Nick was unconscious and he fell to the floor and I propped him up with pillows and dialed 999 the paramedics arrived within about 20 minutes I suppose the seizure lasted about that long uh, maybe a bit less and then he was taken to Winchester Hospital Winchester A&E and then he seemed completely fine because that's the thing when someone has a seizure there was no after effects or or it didn't appear there was any after effects so we found ourselves at Winchester A&E he stayed overnight And during the night, they did a CT scan. That was the moment when the consultant came to tell us, drew the curtains around the bed and came to tell us that Nick had a brain tumour. So seizure was caused by a mass on the brain. And they could tell by the CT scan that it was a frontal lobe tumour. They couldn't give us any more details but we were asked to go home and then we came back into the hospital about 24 hours later and Nick had an MRI scan. He had any other symptoms up until that point or was, was it just a seizure out the blue and there was nothing else? Or can you look back and think actually there was a few telltale signs? Interesting, Sarah. I kind of now, because I've had months of reflection, think was there any signs? You know, my husband was, was young, fit, I'd say a fitness fanatic. You know, and he thought um, he was invincible. So, so he was a cyclist, rower, runner, and he lived for his sport. So the only thing was the previous November, I was at work. He emailed me at work to say he'd had a funny turn. And he said the laptop was on the floor and he didn't know how the laptop had got to the floor. So it was possibly had a seizure. Up until that point, there was no certainly no symptoms although that year in 2011 I would say Nick started to lose his filter so he started to be less careful what he said in front of people he would be more blunt he would lose some of his empathy I put it down to stress he had a job that he didn't enjoy and I think in life sometimes you put things down to stress when there might be some medical symptoms you're missing because we all get stressed. Life is stressful. I just thought, Nick thought that it was just stress. And, and Nick was always quite forthright. So in a way, it was just an exaggeration of his normal personality. So 
a couple of symptoms, but nothing alarming, nothing alarming until the grand mal seizure in, in, in the January. Well, that must have been a huge shock then to suddenly just go from nothing to this whole event happening. Yeah, because again, I think with brain tumours, I know people have said, did he have headaches? Did he feel nauseous? Was there blurred vision? Neil was different in comparison. It was, um, I had, he had pins and needles down one side and um, he did have a couple of really nasty headaches, but he didn't have seizures. So it can really appear in so many ways, even very subtly, can't it? So it's interesting that you remember. Yes. Back, you, you, yeah, you can place two, put two to two together and, and recognise. Yeah. And now friends have said, you know, friends that know Nick well say, you know, he'd lost his filter and was all coiled up spring at times. But you get on with life and you don't notice the subtle changes, or at least we didn't know the subtle yeah. changes. So um, so that was when Nick was diagnosed Yeah, with the MRI scan. We were told what the tumour type was or the likely tumour type, but then Nick had to have a biopsy to actually find out for definite what the tumour type was and the grade. From the MRI scan, they could tell us it was inoperable. It was, as we found out eventually from the biopsy, it was an oligoastrocytoma and it was tendrils as opposed to one solid lump because that's the other thing about brain tumours. They're not necessarily solid lumps that you can remove. So in, in Nick's case, it was tendrils and it was wrapped around the frontal lobe of his brain. And the brain surgeon said it would be too dangerous to remove. After the biopsy, we found out it was a low grade, a grade two. Nick was uh, a good candidate for chemotherapy. Nick had chemotherapy later um, in the summer. Unfortunately, that didn't work. So he had tamolicide. Nick had the genetic markers, which indicated he would be a good candidate for this drug and therefore have uh, a good response. Unfortunately, Nick didn't have a good response and the tumour continued to grow. Which must have been really hard if you were being told he's got all the markers, this should be, you know, this should be straightforward, this should work. Yeah, so that was a big shock. The oncologist said that radiotherapy was Nick's only option. A few months later, Nick had radiotherapy and that was six weeks at Southampton General. He had a, a mask made, covered his face and he was yeah pinned down to the bed every day for six weeks and listen to kind of Radio 2. I think he said it was like two songs on Radio 2. <laughs> two songs <laughs> on Radio 2 and then it was over. So that's certainly nothing to be scared about. It, it, was, it was quick, it was efficient, and the people were brilliant at Southampton General. And yeah, just I don't think it was even two songs. So that tells you how short the procedure was. Yeah. He went in every day for six weeks. I guess after two or three sessions, he said he felt instantly better even though he didn't know he had a brain tumor he said to me diane my head feels lighter so it was it was immediate and wonderful he just said i feel so much better he said so even though he didn't know what he'd had as soon as he'd had two or three sessions he actually said i feel different my my head feels less heavy so he carried on with the six weeks felt absolutely fine he did have hair loss but his mother always said he had a had a lovely shaped head. <laughs> so, so she said he's always had a lovely shaped head. So actually Nick with no hair was was okay. And then when he had the next MRI, uh, that was amazing. Yeah, it not only shrunk but debulked the tumour. And it shrunk the tumour by about 60%, 60-70%. We were so pleased. We felt then that we could start getting our life back. Yeah. After the radiotherapy. Then I, I used to work for Cruise Line. So after Nick had successful radiotherapy, we booked to go on a cruise to Norwegian fjords. I've always wanted to see the fjords, always wanted to see Norway. We booked on a Norwegian fjords cruise with bald head. That was absolutely fine. Did you think at that point, this is it, we, we're through the worst? We've Yes, absolutely. I thought we're through the worst. And I knew that Nick would be monitored. He'd have six monthly scans, which he which he continued to do, have six monthly scans. And the interesting point about radiotherapy is it's strange. After you stop having radiotherapy, what I didn't know, it continues to work. So the next couple of MRIs, the tumor shrunk further. I didn't realize that your body's incredible, isn't it? 
And then you have the radiotherapy, you have the scan. And then for another, probably another year, it continued to slightly, slightly shrink. And was Um, Nick symptom free at that point? Was he just like able to get on with life? So Nick was never free of seizures, but they were controllable. And I think um, if someone has a brain tumour and then a side effect, they have epilepsy, which Nick did, be patient with the drugs because it takes a while to find either the epileptic drug that's right for you or the dosage that's right for you. And it's a bit of trial and error. You might never still be seizure free, but you can get to a point where your seizures are manageable. So obviously we didn't, we had the brain surgeon, then we had the oncologist, then the neurologist was fantastic. So Nick was put on a drug that he felt fine taking. He didn't have any side effects of the drug and it largely controlled the seizures. And so what it meant was that he never had a grand mal seizure after January 2012. That year, he had two petty mouths where he was almost unconscious until we got the dosage right so again my advice would be if you have epilepsy do keep speaking to your oncologist and your neurologist and see there might be a typical cocktail of drugs that could work for you yeah so after we got that right nick would occasionally and we're talking every few months if he was stressed so again, that's an important thing. If you have epilepsy, certainly with the brain tumours, keep your stress levels low. Yeah. Because if he got under stress, then he would have a small seizure. So he would have a hand clench or a hand shake. So it started off with a left frontal tumour and it would affect his right side. It's the opposite side. So he'd have a right hand clench or his right hand would shake. And occasionally he would be trying to say something and he'd lose his ability to speak. But these would last a minute and that's all he ever had from then on. And I guess once you've experienced a grand mal seizure, that probably seems like nothing. Um, Yeah, if you experience a grand mal seizure, nothing prepares you for that. Hmm. And so, yeah, so any subsequent seizures were certainly far, far less than the grand mal seizure. And as I said, you know, um, from 2013 onwards, they were very small and, and until we got to 2018. So we just live with it. And Nick could disguise it. So that's the other thing. People, and you always think that people are looking at you. People aren't. People are too bothered getting on with their own. Like, so if Nick had a hand clenched, no one would notice. We knew, but no one really noticed. The interesting fact was that Nick was an avid cyclist. When we lived in Richmond, he actually cycled from Richmond to Devon in a day. He was a full-on roadie. He was a full-on mammal middle-aged man in lycra he was was like what is that say that again midlife they're called mammals so it's m m a m i l (laughs) and it stands for middle-aged man in lycra it's a mammal as opposed (laughs) to a a mammal (laughs) Um, yeah so he had um so he had his all his lycra so you know like a tour de france rider so he had all the lycra and and the clippy shoes went into the the bike pedals and even after his diagnosis, he would still get on his bike, wow. put on his lycra. Such a good and, thing to get out, isn't it? Get out into the fresh air and just take yourself away from all that and be in the moment. Such a good thing to get out into nature. And yeah. How about you, though, Diane? I, I, you know, he was doing that. That was like a release for him. You know, at that time, what were you doing to, to look after yourself whilst caring for him? Probably not enough in, in answer to that question. I look back and think I could have done more self-care, but you're so in the moment, you're so, and I, the other thing was Nick gave up his job, so I was caring for Nick and doing a big job, so I was doing 12-hour days, I worked for a cruise line, I was in charge of their overseas agencies, and so I would have to get into work early and stay late just because of time differences around the world. Um, Nick was okay to be on his own, but I didn't feel that I could have a life. I felt as soon as I finished work, I needed to rush home. Mm. And I think that was a mistake I made. I needed to still carve out a life for myself. And I did to a certain extent. But now looking back, I that was the start of my journey of eventually being a full-time carer. If people asked me out for a drink after work, I'd say, no, I've got to get home. 
if there was any kind of parties or anything, even with neighbours, that did affect Nick. He didn't really want to go because he was frightened that being in a busy place with lots of social activity would cause him to have a seizure. So it meant our social life was very truncated. Over the years, I became more and more exhausted. Did you feel that you had to get home because you were conscious that he was at home on his own and had been home on his own all day if he wasn't working? Or was it because you felt that he wouldn't be able to look after himself at that point? The former. He was on his own all day and I felt guilty. That's exactly how I felt, Diana. (laughs) I'd be at work all day and then kind of be rushing home. I felt guilty going out for a drink and enjoyment. And I knew Neil had been sat at home all day. It's boring, isn't it? You want to yeah. Get sure yeah. Okay. And, I, and I should have, and I think for, for carers, I think it's carving out your own life, and I, I didn't really. Mm. It was snatched moments. I think that's what I would say, snatched moments of bits of fun. But even when you're out, the back of your mind is always thinking, is Nick okay? You know, I'd always be texting him. I need to get back. Yeah, he's he's stuck at home all day um, and I need to be there for him. But in hindsight, I think I would have been a better care for him had I had my own self-care and I looked after myself better. I would have been less intolerant, I, you know, less snappy, less tired. You just feel the need to be with that person. And I, I wish I'd just taken a deep breath and thought, Diane, you need time for yourself. Yeah. But we're not taught that, though, are we? And I don't think we're ever, so if anybody's listening on this podcast, you know, they're caring for a loved one, it's, it's recognising, you, you know, this is your time with them too. So actually looking after yourself, you have more to give them because you're in a better state of mind, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, and then you, yeah, you're a better state of mind to care for them. You've got stories to tell them. You can, um, you know, just things that have happened. And so then it can in, in, enrich their lives as, as a default of that. And how did it affect your relationship? Because obviously it's that's a role change. He's not working now. You're now working full time. Did he become more needy emotionally on you at that point? Yes. Um, very much so. Nick became very needy and he he always wanted, from the day we met, we met doing journalism and creative writing. And he was a deeply affectionate man and he was one of these men, aside from his sport, would want to be with me 24-7. And so you can imagine how that then increased after his diagnosis. Yeah. So, yeah, he became very needy and and I responded to it. So he he just wanted to be with me all the time. And that was quite difficult because then, as I said, I felt guilty. So I would I would give into it. Yeah. And, you know, so he would text me, when are you going to be home? How long are you going to be? And it was, yeah, it was, it was quite challenging. And I'm, I, I'm not sure I handled it as well as I could in, 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 in the respect of, I, ju- I just gave in. Mm. And so I think, and I think that's what carers do. You, yeah. you give in because that seems the, it seems the easy option to just give in to someone wanting you to be there with them all the time. So he was definitely very needy, not scared, not scared of his brain tumour, not scared of um, the prognosis because we never asked what it was, but he just became much more dependent. And I think he also felt guilty because I was earning, I was the breadwinner. He felt he wasn't contributing in terms of bringing money in or doing anything that he felt was particularly worthwhile. So then, then you could come into conversations about what you think you can do because he was still healthy. So just because you have a brain tumor doesn't mean you're not healthy. He was still healthy. He was still fit. He's still got life to live, hasn't he? He's yeah, he's This is all your life. Whatever's going on, you know, make let's let's make the most, you know. And I think that would be um, an important or a piece of important advice would be that as I was working, we chatted about Nick. What can you do? He left his job. He was a project manager for local council, which he hated. Sorry, all those project managers for local council. That's <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but it was 
it was a job he hated. So in a way, that was good because he didn't mind leaving that job because he didn't like it. <laughs> but then it was trying to think, well, what are your passions? Because if Nick was doing something he loved, that could then in turn take the pressure off me. Yeah. So we we had a lot of chats. And I think it's important to talk about, well, aside from the job you did, what you enjoy doing. So obviously cycling was number one, absolutely number <laughs> one. Obsessive was, was a right word. He was obsessive about cycling. So we've got a local bike hub in Winchester. Um, it's a cafe and a repair shop. Nick got in touch with the owner. He started to volunteer at the local bike hub. So he was happy as anything, being covered in grease, you know, fixing bikes in the back, learning a new skill. So that was really good for him. So he could tinker on bikes for an hour or two, just drop in there, meet like-minded people. So that was a bit of socialisation. Did that make it easier for you? Yeah. yeah. While you're at work, he's not at home just waiting for you to walk through the door. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, and then he had something to tell me. So he could go, oh, my God, you know, this person came in with this, that and the other or chatted. So then it wasn't one sided. He could, even though he wasn't contributing financially, he was certainly contributing to our discussions like we used to. So, yeah, he did that. Obviously, Sarah, he learned graphic design. I know you're a graphic designer. Yeah, I'm just going to say, I think it's Neil learned Egyptology. So you just never know where it might lead. (laughs) Oh, my God, I love this. And you've got, suddenly you've got, you're learning. So Neil always loved Egypt. So he was there every every week on a Wednesday afternoon at Richmond Adult College, enjoying that for seven years. I have a degree at the end of it. You'd (laughs) (laughs) It's like fascinating, isn't it? So, yes, whether it's Egyptology, whether it's bike maintenance, graphic design, he learned how to build websites. So he had a little bits and pieces of money. So a friend would say, you know, can you can you do a website? He would sit in our conservatory, um, look out to the garden, put his favorite music on. He, he was he was happier. So I, I think that would be a tip is find whatever that new normal is your life might not be the same but it doesn't have to be worse and in some respects it can be richer Mm. because you find value in things that you might never thought you you could find value in you could follow your passion you can really start to enjoy life again and do you think because it sounds like he had a job that he hated to start with and I know from talking to you Sarah you gave up your job and you were like I got to a stage where I didn't enjoy it anyway something like this can give you that little bit of a kick number one for me was I you know I've been working in a corporate for five years and although I love graphic design and being creative and I think that's a great one if anybody out there you know what is your you know it's getting creative what can you create or do that's where we're really great as humans when you're getting creative it's more Mm -hmm. exciting and then that was it I did a little book that I was reading it was kind of just my own life coaching and I I realized I had to sack myself because number one I well I wanted to be there for Neil more and spend more quality time with him however long he had but number two I'd had enough of the corporate world and actually I was learning and as you I'm sure you have Diane when you start to go through all this actually there's a lot of stuff that really doesn't really matter anymore you don't sweat the small stuff and you just think I just don't need to bother with that anymore you know I've got absolutely so. And I, I think when Nick Tumor progressed, we carried on with life. I suppose we had a, a new normal and stability for about about five years. Okay. And um then in in 2018, uh we were going to visit my sister in York. Nick had a fairly big seizure on the train. So you can imagine a packed cross-country commuter train and it was at commuter time okay imagine he started vocalizing which is one of the types of seizure that nick had but vocalizing and couldn't stop Mm. and then you have the whole train carriage turning around and staring at you so i had to try and think it's it's limiting seizures are limiting seizures are self-limiting and because i knew that i thought at some point he's going to stop vocalizing mm-hmm. so I found myself telling people on the train it's fine it's okay this will go away soon and then it did so so Nick yeah had a, a fairly big seizure 
And stupidly, we carried on all the way five hours to York on the train. (laughs) (laughs) And after that, and I'm thinking, why didn't we get off? Why didn't we get off? But no, we carried on because you have a different normal. You get used to seizures. You you just think, okay, we've dealt with this before. Mm. We'll carry on for yeah. five hours. <laughs> <laughs> sure, they were delighted on the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so so we carried on all the way from Winchester to York. I look back now and just think that probably wasn't the wisest decision, Diane, you've ever made. But anyway. We made it. That was the new normal, wasn't it? That was your new normal. (laughs) My new normal was just coping, yeah. So it's funny what you just cope with, isn't it? Absolutely. Get on with living. It's like we're going away and we're looking forward to it. And it's like, well, hoping it's crossed, you're going to be all right. You know, everything will be okay after this. Yeah, so you think that. um, Unfortunately, um, over the weekend, Nick had more seizures and then totally lost his speech. We ended up at York A&E. Nick had another MRI scan and they then feared it was tumour progression. This is 2018. Another year went by where the oncologists weren't sure whether it was progression or inflammation. So we carried on living our life not knowing. Oncologists are brilliant and fantastic. But even with Nick's tumour, they really didn't know quite what was happening. So be careful to Google your prognosis or Google your tumour type because there's still unknowns with brain tumours. They weren't sure because sometimes inflammation can look like progression on a scan. So this went on for a good year until the spring of 2019. So almost a year after that seizure on the train to York. Then they then determined, yes, it had grown and Nick was put on more chemotherapy, a different type of drug. I decided at that point, as Sarah had mentioned earlier, corporate life started to lose its shine. I felt I needed to be with Nick to get him through the chemotherapy in the summer of 2019. So I left work. I left my big corporate job. I felt that I just wanted to spend time with Nick. And we had a lovely summer. It was lovely. He was having chemotherapy, but he wasn't sick with it. You don't always have to be worried about chemotherapy. Nick was never sick. Really? He was never sick. You have anti-sickness drugs. You listen to the oncologist. He was never, never felt ill. He never felt ill with any treatment. Amazing. I I will just add to that. Neil, at the beginning, was very sick. Um, He had hemosolomide two lots. Then his body got used to it. I mean, he had therapy on five years and he actually just got used to it. It was a bit green around the gills, but I'd drive him home and we'd we'd maybe go out. (laughs) So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the body's quite innate and getting quite resilient. Busy. Yeah. And I don't know if because Neil and Nick were fit and young, I don't know if that if that mm-hmm. helped. I really don't know. But he but it was, yeah, take the anti-sickness tablets, eat healthily, you know, eat sensibly. He got through that fine. I left my job in, in 2019 and Nick started to get symptomatic in the summer of 2019. He started to get a little bit of incontinence. And again, I thought, is it just cycling or is it something to do with the tumour? He carried on with the chemotherapy course. He also started bizarrely to have trouble actually getting on the bike. Nick had these racing bikes, you know, a road bikes, Tour de France high-end bikes with his skinny wheels and his clippy shoes and his lycra and they have their saddles super high but he started to have problems actually getting onto the bike he then had to we had a we had a couple of fold-up bikes so again it's that determination to carry on with your new normal so I thought okay it's the chemotherapy so he had his fancy Tour de France looky likey bike <laughs> and then we had a couple of old fold-up bikes but they're low slung I thought, okay, well, he can't get on the tall bike. Let's get him on the, the low bike. Did you find that you naturally had to become a very good problem solver and adapt very quickly to things oh, as things Sarah, change? Absolutely. I never thought I, I was a problem solver. By, maybe I am. I now look back and think, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You, you find creative ways to solve problems. And whether it's and you, you medical conditions thinking, okay, well, he, well Nick can't 
get on a high bike because he can't lift his legs up very high. But we've got a low bike. So you find ways that you can still carry on and he could still do what he loved, which was cycling. Albeit it was this really kind of rusty old fold up bike that we had in the shed. But it still meant we could go cycling and we could go for coffees. And and actually he wasn't worried about that bike being nicked either because it was <laughs> so yeah, so you do find creative solutions. And yeah, to add with that, Diana, which is lovely. It, it's not what you can't do; it's what yeah. what can you do? And it's so much that you still can do. It, you know, we can also look back and go, "Oh, I can't get on that bike." But hey, it's it's about focusing forward. We can we can turn this around. What you know? I was even thinking that you're going to start to talk about a tricycle next, or whatever. You do, <laughs> you know, yeah. Why not? And actually, I was going to say, Neil, it's just come to my head. I, Neil and I, we took him on cycling companion uh, down at Bushy Park, and they have this. So they get these tricycles course or you're two you're in a big tricycle and it, he unfortunately i was doing all the pedaling from the look of it but we were out in the fresh air and it was beautiful you know it's a big tricycle with a two-seater and off we'd go it was rather wonderful so did you, you both feel the pressure though being the well one that you had to be the one to find the solutions you had to be the one to come up with the answer that both Neil and Nick left it to you to find those solutions was that part of your role almost do you know what you go into that role don't you Diane I think you just yeah. get, you step into it because it's like you want to keep them going and want to make the most it's it's the you know what can we do what not you know what enjoyment and sometimes Neil would shake his head if I was taking him up to the rugby because he wasn't able to speak anymore I'd be like, well, I kind of want to go and I'm the carer, so I go free or whatever. And, and I'd, I'd always say to Neil, now look, I, I don't want you stuck in these four walls all day. I said, that is not an option. I said, even if it's just out for like half an hour or a, a couple of hours, it's so incredibly important because you're well enclosed and it's depressing. Very much so. You can't almost threaten to, to pull the plug off the TV uh, in earlier years because his world became so much smaller and with that, he was just watching news on a on a loop, and, the, and it was the recession. So he was getting into this really like, oh my! And I said, stop watching that, and I took it over to Seinfeld, and you know, I'd get him watching the comedy. But you know, there were times I'd I'd have to kind of g him up. We would be the gear uppers, wouldn't we, Diane? Getting out, come on, you know. Let's when you get back, you'll be pleased to get home and and relax again, you know. That must be quite emotionally draining to have to constantly be the one to try and lift it up all the time and find those solutions. You know what? You don't even think about that. You just you, it's just what you naturally what you step into it and you get on with it. And even though it is exhausting, um, you, you get on with it, don't you, Diane? Yeah, I think you do. And, and yeah, Nick, Nick watched kind of news on an endless loop as well. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's, yeah, you, you step into this role and, and it's almost, you don't realize you, you just do it naturally. And you just want to do the best for the person you love. You want to do the best and you want them to have lived their best life on whatever shape or form that best life is that you can live their best life with them you yeah it just it came natural actually and so so yeah the trying to find solutions was just a natural development of our new life we had a lovely summer we had a lovely summer in in 2019 back of my mind I suppose I knew that Nick was getting more symptomatic and I thought the the leg problems and the bit of incontinence I thought I think the tumor might be growing so in October 2019 nick had the results of his latest mri scan nick's tumor then was a grade four and terminal uh which was obviously quite devastating the the tumor had spread it was now left and right hemisphere and it was all over his brain they asked do you want the prognosis even then we said no we're going to carry on live our life good for you that's so good and and courageous and you know very brave to to go that's it let's get on with this let's make the most whatever happens exactly there wasn't any you know you hadn't changed that day just walking into the oncologists so we walked out of there determined to carry on we just carried on in the january of last year 
they decided to do another form of chemotherapy, intravenous chemotherapy, in January and February. But that actually, unfortunately, didn't work. In March of last year, just as lockdown was happening and the pandemic started to unfold, Nick got suddenly went downhill. I found myself on my own with Nick, who is obviously now terminally ill and very symptomatic. So that so we fast forwarded a bit to March of last year. And that was just when coronavirus, we went into lockdown. Yeah, I, I was saying to, to Sarah, I had the perfect storm. It was almost, you know, that Nick started to get bad in March. And as coronavirus started to hit, that meant that every single health service professional was stretched. So whether that was the GP, the hospice, any kind of care help, I was initially totally on my own. And that was quite scary, actually. That was quite scary. But you find, again, an, an inner resilience to to cope. It was finding friends that were carers or still were, you know. So it's finding those people mm-hmm. that can give you advice because there's people out there. You're not alone. Even then, I w- it was kind of thinking, right, OK, before lockdown happened in, in the February, I met with two friends that I've only known for a couple of years and they've become really close to me and they were carers and it's interesting in life your friends ebb and flow I don't know if Sarah you found this friends that you thought would be there maybe one in 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 the same way you thought they might be but new people come into your life so I had these friends and they wrote me to-do lists in what I needed to do. So reach out, there's there's support out there, reach out. Even in the pandemic, there was, you know, so they wrote me to-do lists, what agencies to contact, what I needed to do, how I got hospital equipment, you know, a holistic view of everything I needed to do to support Nick because, as I said, the health services were so stretched last year and obviously continue to be stretched, but... I think at the beginning of the pandemic, it was such an unknown, wasn't it? And, yeah. and every, it was chaotic. And I had my, not my list. It was right, I need to do this, I need to do that. And so, so that was the march. Yeah, I was going to say that's, yeah, putting the feelers out, you know, with you, the one mm. diagnosed, you know, you're, you're not on your own. It, it, you feel like you are, especially with coronavirus. I mean, it's such a, you, you couldn't get friends and family as much as you like around there, which is desperately needed at that mm. at that particular time. But <laughs> even with particular charities with their doors closed, they're still doing great work. Others don't really understand what you're going through um, unless you've been through it yourself, caring for a loved one. No, this is it. And I think it was kind of when Nick in, in the April last year got, unfortunately got psychotic, had psychotic episodes, because it was affecting his brain. And I remember phoning my friend in the middle of the night and my friend just saying, phone 999. And don't be afraid to do that because that expedited care. It was like, you know, this person, this woman is in need. I remember phoning 999, that expedited a care package. Did you feel hesitant to do it? I hear people saying, no, but he's not like this is a tumour. I can't do this to him. He's not that person. Yeah, I felt awful. I felt awful. I thought this isn't my lovely, caring, sensitive husband. But it isn't. It's, It's the disease. And it's the disease that's doing this to your lovely, caring, sensitive husband. He's still there. It's the disease that's starting to take hold. And you can't put yourself at risk, your husband at risk, you know, your partner at risk. So don't be afraid to do that. Yes, absolutely. I felt I was betraying him. But in hindsight now, it was the best thing because it expedited care because it's recorded it's recorded and then it was kind of this person this woman needs help she needs care so that that was needed so that was the april every day was a challenge after that nick developed deep vein thrombosis he's got shingles he got a chest infection but because he was so young and fit he got through all of that he got through all of that bless him he kept on going but again even through all of that you find a new normal again you know so as the Months progressed, he started to lose um, ability to move his arms, legs, speech, swallow. But there's still ways you can live your life. So I think it was just, you know, I talked to Sarah about having coloured lights in the lounge because I just thought um, you can get these really fancy Philips Hue bulbs where you 
control it by your app, your phone. So I could think, right, it's going to be sunny yellow during the day and it's going to be lovely and blue and calming in the evening. So Nick knew, you know, the difference between day and night. And so we had different colours. We had, at that point, you know, I would have the TV on and he loves space. So I'd find Discovery Channel. So if I wanted to pop out to get a prescription and I had carousing at this point, he could watch NASA, he could watch space missions. I'd put subtitles on the TV, you know, so he could watch what was happening on on the TV. And there was without necessarily any sound on. So if he if he woke in his hospital bed in that in our lounge, he there was always some kind of activity and some kind of stimulation. So this even as a, a disease progresses, don't know if you find it. So there's always you make adaptations to kind of absolutely. You, there's lots of lovely things. I mean, we're so luck we're lucky in the fact that you know you've got more people. We've got all these like mm-hmm. iPods and stuff like that you can you know I had a playlist for Neil or I'd get a new book on Audible for him to listen to sometimes you just fall mm-hmm. asleep you know him there's there's lots you can do and I think that coloured lights thing which changes the mood in the mm-hmm. in the living room I think that's rather wonderful because Neil was in a hospital bed for four years you know so that's a long old time but um yeah to have that you know light show and I think it's and it's just so caring and loving, Diane, of you. Oh. To be- is that important to you as well, your well-being? Because now you're at home, you're caring for your husband who's in a hospital bed in your lounge, your, your home mm. has been turned mm. into a hospital, effectively. It was turned into a hospice, yeah. And, you know, when he could still take tablets, and sometimes I would crush the tablet down into a shot glass, you know, so it was fun. He sometimes didn't want to take his meds or was difficult to swallow. So you find you find inventive ways around things. So, so it was kind of, you know, a shot glass with his medicine in, or it was we'd have, you know, kind of a, a lounge disco with the coloured lights. I would be the one dancing around the bed. Funny if I still do that now, I have a kitchen disco. So I'm just dancing around my kitchen. Right. <laughs> and so it was, yeah, and it was just things that, you know you could do to help and I gave Nick an eye mask when I wasn't there and he could still use his hands I said to him put your eye mask on if you don't want the carers to bother you so he would just put that down over his eyes Mm. it's almost like a a do not disturb sign yeah I was trying to think what what you know as Nick started to lose communication and and couldn't vocalize what he wanted it was it was kind of what can I do so the carers were no. And at just about self-care, I started quite soon in the in the spring. I would have between five o'clock and six o'clock. I would say, right, I'm going to make some phone calls. And sometimes between five and six o'clock I did. But sometimes what my neighbour did, I couldn't see her because of coronavirus. She put table and chairs down at the bottom of her garden. I'd sit in the bottom of her garden with and I had a bottle of wine in my rucksack and a glass of ice cubes. <laughs> and I'd sit in the bottom of her garden with my music on and, and just breathe and yeah. pause. So the care is new at five, between five and six every day. Diane was doing something. I didn't tell them what I was doing. And I said, I'm just going out, but I'm only, I'm really close. I was, I was literally next door but one. <laughs> and, and, and I had my own little table and chairs I could let myself in my neighbour's back gate. And she said, just be there as long as you want. But I knew if anything happened, I could run back in five minutes. So it's, again, finding inventive ways for you. So it was, yeah, so I had my, you know, had my kind of, whether it was fizz or whether it was white wine, glass and ice cream. That's a really good piece of advice as well, (laughs) isn't it? Because, I, you know, I think if somebody listened to this who has got a friend who's a carer, because often you hear people think, I don't know what to do to help. I don't feel I can do anything. But even just having that neighbour that that put that table and chair you at the bottom of the garden gave you permission almost to say, here's a space, use Mm. it. It's something that small that can make a big difference. It can be it can be the tiniest things that make a massive difference. Don't think you can't do anything because all it was was space at the bottom of her garden. But it was huge to me, you mm. know, that I could go in that safe place. Carers didn't know where I was, but I could breathe and mm. recharge my batteries. And again, it could be that if you're caring for someone, 
it might be built into your own routine. So Nick knew, and even as he got sicker and sicker and sicker, he knew that it's five o'clock, Diane goes out at five o'clock. He never actually questioned. I just said, I'm making calls. And when he could talk, he went, all right, okay, gosh, you've got lots of calls to make. And, um, <laughs> and then as it progressed and he couldn't speak, I'd still say to him, I'm just going out for my five o'clock calls. And then it, it recharged me for whatever I needed. And I sometimes did make calls. Other times I would just sit there and have a glass of wine. And sometimes it, I call it, it took the edge of the world. Just time for you just to sit down and, and getting away from, from in that house as well, mm-hmm. that energy of all that's going mm-hmm. on. Because it could be like a, a bus station sometimes with carers coming in. <laughs> getting yeah. away from that, just having time out from that is really important. It can make or break somebody. It's really powerful. Getting into the outside space, as I always say, helps you deal with the inside space. You can just get away from it and be you. And it's just about you, not having to be there for anybody else but in that moment really yeah exactly or I've got you know I've got a local park I've got a favorite bench and a favorite view so find your bench mm-hmm. find your view yeah. you know and so there was a bench I used to go to as well and it was and I'd sit on my bench and I'd just and I would have my airpods and I would listen to music or I'd have an I would have a talking book or anything. And it is it's find your space, whatever space that is. I wish in the caring journey, I'd found my space sooner. So find your space, find it sooner. It will help you through. I found it, but only when Nick was terminal in the last few months. And I, I'd wish I'd had more self-care earlier in, in our journey because that would have helped. Because I would say that to anybody out there where you maybe don't even feel, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And carers often say, oh, don't worry about me, I'm okay. I've said that before. But actually, yeah, you may feel like it, but sometimes we really do suppress our emotions quite a lot. You've got no idea actually how you're feeling, so it's checking in. And when you do go to sit down at the bottom of the garden to pause with that bottle of wine, um, you know, it's checking in with yourself. Because actually when you sit down and get away from it, you you can see the wood for the trees and go, oh, how am I feeling? Because you, yeah, yeah. you don't switch off otherwise. You, you don't. You don't. So that five o'clock bottom of the garden, and then as coronavirus eased a bit, my friend would join me at the bottom of the garden, my neighbour. So sometimes, you know, she, she was there, sometimes she wasn't, but she'd always find me. It's a bit like finding like a leprechaun at the bottom of the garden <laughs> or something. Um, maybe it was. I'm only five foot one. So I was... <laughs> Me and my little toadstool with a with a glass of pinocchio. <laughs> but yeah, it was a safe space. And then and then she had a shed. So even if it was raining, I could let myself in the shed. <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't yeah, matter where. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be anything super glamorous. It's and I think that's the- what's important to remember, isn't it? Is that if you have a friend, if you're listening to this and it's your friend that's doing the, the caring, or if you're if you're listening and it's your dad or mum that's got a brain tumour and your mum does main responsibility of the caring and you say, I think I want to help. I don't know how to help my mum or I don't know how to help my dad. It's some of these little things. It doesn't have to be huge. It's the small things. It's it's someone picking flowers from their garden, putting it in a jam jar and leaving it on my doorstep. Mm-hmm. It's someone cooking a bit more for their evening meal and making some for me. It's about someone just giving you some nice hand cream or body lotion or bar salts or so you feel better. There's so many things that you can do for a carer that is not massive, Mm -hmm. but you feel that there's a world out there. You feel you feel cared for. And I used to just find little packages on my doorstep, you know, from people and it, it just, yeah, meant the world. You know, and they text me because you've got, you think these days you've got so many kind of forms of communication. So or just text someone or, or someone say, Diane, there's, and we called it, my neighbours, we called it um, the yellow sticker fairy, YSF. So Marks and Spencers, so I'm right in the city. So Marks and Spencers are great for yellow stickers, bargain, posh food. So my, my friends would go on the hunt for markdown yellow sticker stuff. <laughs> and they, they used to say, Diane, the YSF fairy has been, been on your doorstep. So it's a yellow <laughs> sticker fairy. 
they would get stuff from me and they would just say, yeah, why is there fairies being? Have a look on your doorstep. So you could do something like that. It's yeah, silly, yeah. but it was funny. And it was kind of, you know, what can they get for Diane, you know? And so they would go kind of late in the day, you know, whether it was, I don't know, steak or something really lovely, really treaty. So it's all these imaginative ways you yeah. can kind of do things, which doesn't really cost much, especially if, if it's reduced Marks and Spencer's yeah. goodies. Yeah, so that was good. Are there any last thoughts that either of you would like to say? It's been really, really amazing talking to you both and so many good things, even just, just that, like you said, like the Dicker Fairy, things like that are just absolutely amazing. <laughs> I was going to say, it's been wonderful listening to your story, Diane. It's really <laughs> wonderful. And I know with one of your things, it was grab life with both hands. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, grab life with both hands, create your new normal. Life is for living. Don't let your brain tumor diagnosis define you. You're still you. You're still you're still alive. You've still got so much life to live. Don't be frightened by it. It is frightening initially, but move forward. Find your passion. Find your space and create your new dreams, whatever they are, and live your life because every day we're here is 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 a blessing so every day if the sun is shining or not just go out and live your life because yes we've only got one life it might be shorter than you want but you really don't know so just go for it go for it and create that new normal absolutely amazing advice great wise words diane beautiful beautifully put thank you thank you very much thank you thank you We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you'd like more information, you can visit our website at thebraintumorcharity.org or email our support team at support at thebraintumorcharity.org. And finally, before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast, please can you leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so we can reach more people and raise more awareness. I'm Tamsin and I work in the individual giving team at the Brain Tumor Charity. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with a brain tumor and are worried about your finances, the Brain Tumor Charity's Benefits and Money Advice Clinic, run in partnership with Citizens Advice, is here to help you. Our expert advisors can help you access the financial support you're entitled to, as well as give advice on how to make the most of your money. To make an appointment with our Benefits and Money Advice Clinic, Visit our website at thebraintumorcharity.org slash money or call our support team on 0808 800 0004.